Missed the show? No worries. We've got you covered on point on the podcast. Explosive documents reveal that the Trudeau government ignored warnings from the United States and still wanted to invite the Chinese military for cold weather training in this country just weeks after the two Michaels were kidnapped. It's unbelievable. One of the Toronto 18 masterminds released from jail despite warnings. Yeah, he is still a risk. Are you shocked? You shouldn't be. And the gift of life from a total stranger gives one of our past guests a second chance at life when his life was literally slipping away. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. This is a momentous occasion. I mean, the geek in me is amazed that we, no one would have thought, I think, you know, even when we looked back um, at the first discovery of the of the virus that um, less than a year later we'd be authorizing and then distributing a vaccine. So I think it's just a testament to the decades of science and technology and research that's gone into the development of that vaccine. I think it's a testament to the work of regulators internationally working together. It's a testament to our team that's really um, dedicated an incredible amount of time and energy and resources to do that. And I think, you know, it is a, it's a, an exceptional day for Canada. Yeah, the end of this nightmarish hell is officially underway with Health Canada approving a vaccine, which we all knew they'd approve, but Justin Trudeau's half-brother will not touch it. I'll explain why. Alex Pearson with you on what is now an historic December 9th here, a day in history that uh, will become known as the day a COVID vaccine was approved in this country. So yes, it is a good news day, but you know, yes, we knew that it's not like they were not going to approve this. It's also the official day that Justin Trudeau inoculated himself from any criticism for now, because I don't know how he pulled this rabbit out of the head, but he's managed to make it look like Canada's not back of the line. So yes, today is better than yesterday. Not only do we have approval of the vaccine, uh, but we also know that, you know, Health Canada can actually move beyond a glacial pace to approve drugs if they actually have the will and political pressure. So let's let's remember that in the future when we're waiting years and years for them to approve other things, they can actually move when required. And so uh, I watched a very long, dry technical briefing today from Health Canada, which lays out the approval, you know, how we're going to get this vaccine into Canadians. And the reality is, you know, even with the approval, we are still a, a very long way away from freedom. And it's going to be a big, big challenge uh, getting a lot of people, I think, on board because there are a lot of people rightfully nervous that corners have been cut, you know, that politics is at play. And so the Dr. Sharma of Health Canada had to address that. So I think it's really important to to say that, you know, as we monitor the vaccines, uh, adverse event reports will come up. So what do we know? We have to look at what we know right now, what we know from the assessment that we've done, and then what we do going forward. So let's measure expectations. So we know that we've got up to 249,000 doses coming, and they're uh, probably packaging them up as we speak. And if all goes according to plan, um, then we should be getting them soon. 
well, not us, but some. And without question, you know, the sudden appearance of vaccines is political. I mean, sure, it's good we got them, but let us not kid ourselves. Trudeau was literally screwed if he did not get something in this country at the same time as, as others. There would have just been a political bloodbath had Canada been left on the sidelines watching uh, the United States, the UK, Israel, Mexico, all those countries rolling up their sleeves while we're just sitting there and watching. So I don't know what was done behind the scenes. But what can be done now is that Trudeau can change the narrative and the optics saying, see, we're not last. The opposition was wrong. But, you know, it's actually going to take transparency. And we had very, very little of that from this government since the beginning of this gong show. And while the majority of Canadians are not going to get this vaccine until end of September, and that is, of course, on the assumption that things go according to plan, what it means is that, you know, Ontario will see 800,000 people get vaccinated by March, but there are 14 million people living in Ontario. So, you know, it means we're going to wear masks, we're going to have to distance, we're going to have to live with restrictions as a reality for at least another year. And yeah, sure, we're going to see this continuous drib and drab as vaccines come in over the next couple of months, but that will only vaccinate a handful of people in this country. And I think we have to get our heads around that. I mean, we are a long way off from normal, and it means a lot more deaths, a lot more cases, and a whole lot more economic destruction for this country. And I don't care how big his portfolio is. I just care that the prime minister can deliver. But they better get a plan in place for us to live with this thing. Because so far, we have not seen one. I mean, we talk about rapid testing all the time. But that's all it is, is talk. What we actually never do is get a plan in place. We still don't have it in a majority of long-term care. We have it nowhere in schools outside of hot zones, airports. I mean, we are nine months into this thing, and all we do is talk about the things that should have been in place months ago, you know, things that could have actually avoided big, large-scale shutdowns, avoided cases, uh, deaths, and all these lockdown measures that are crushing businesses. And this is federal jurisdiction. And I don't know what it's going to take but all we get is all this talk. We don't actually get anyone being held to account. Like there's no reason this far in that every school, every hospital, every big uh, place around that people gather, be it churches, be it gathering places, businesses, there's no reason they should not have rapid testing in place by now. No, it's not a cure. No, it's not the be all and end all, but it sure is a great tool to have as an extra barrier. And we just, none of it is around. All we do is talk about it. And I'm sure it's out there floating around somewhere, but it's in such minuscule amounts, it makes no difference. And so they better come up with a plan if we're all going to be masked up for the next year of getting it in at some point. I'm sick of the talk about it. Just, just do the walk. You know, but this vaccine, for it to work, it's got to get into it as many Canadians as possible. And there are a lot of people that are hesitant. I mean, not me. I mean, my sleeve is already rolled up. I'm ready to go. But there is a lack of trust. And some of it's justified. And because we, frankly, have been not given a lot of transparency from this government since day one. I mean, remember, remember, we were told this is low risk. You know, we were, were prepared. Masks don't work. And then, you know, question why travel hadn't been stopped. You were called a racist. So we got identity politics and virtue signaling instead of real leadership. I think that has led to a real distrust for those in charge. And when you don't have information, when you don't have, you know, facts in place, that's when the echo chambers, and that's where you get 
all these conspiracy th- you know, theories filling in the vacuum. So that's their fault. They have not been transparent since day one, leaving a lot of people to guess, like, what the hell's going on? Is there, is there a problem here? Do we, what aren't they telling us? And there's one guy who really doesn't trust this guy. Trudeau's own half-brother doesn't trust anything. His name is Kyle Kemper. And uh, he won't touch this vaccine. He's an outspoken anti-vaxxer, but he tells the glo- uh, the Global Post, the National Post, uh, he believes this pandemic is being used to overhaul Canada. And that global corporocracy, I can't even say the word, corporatocracy, there you go, corporatocracy uh, has taken advantage of this crisis to diminish democracies and tighten control over our lives. And so he believes his brother, the prime minister, is doing the, quote, great reset and is seizing the moment to make Canada more autocratic than, uh, than libertarian. And he also believes in things like there's rampant fraud in the U.S. election. He pretty much believes everything his prime minister brother does not. So you can just imagine what that family dinner is like, eh? I mean, I'd love to be a fly on that wall. Pass the potatoes and uh, screw you, you uh, globalist commie. I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure they don't have dinner together, but it's it's uh, it was an interesting article of just how different they think. And of course, politicians cannot help what their family members think. I mean, Doug Ford's daughter is uh, is an anti masker vaxxer uh, andrea horvath's son has come out calling this whole thing a hoax and uh you know why we haven't heard more attacks maybe by team trudeau over all this Derek sloan anti-vax views is maybe he realizes don't do that because it comes pretty close to home in his own family so there are lots of people in this country who are very leery if i get one kind of theme of email the most probably right now it's about people who are and, and people that are very normal, they're not anti-vaxxers, they're saying, I just don't trust this. So it's going to take time. They better get out in front of this and convince people that corners haven't been cut and that this is safe. Otherwise, they're not going to get buy-in, and we need buy-in. And coming up, it, timing's everything. I'm telling you, timing is, is everything. It's incredible. You get this big, huge, great news Health Canada story on the very same day that a very explosive report has come out. And we're going to talk about this later in the show because it, it, is, it is actually just shocking. But it reveals that just weeks after the two Michaels were taken hostage and warnings from the United States government and military intelligence warning the true government of danger, they still wanted to invite the Chinese military to come to this country for cold weather training sessions so that they could learn our techniques. And apparently Trudeau was so furious with the decision by the military to cancel it that they said from here on out, you have to approve everything through through his office. It's a very big story. It's brought a lot of questions that will get answers, but who the hell is this government for? I I don't understand it. I've had to read it a few times and some of the findings in these uh, very sensitive documents are confounding. Of, of how determined they were to kind of bow to China in not just uh, not just before the Michaels were kidnapped, but after. So we'll talk about that because there's a lot of information coming out of it. And, and the, the kicker is they didn't redact these sensitive documents. Someone in the office forgot to redact sensitive national security information. And I don't know if it's that they were so busy redacting the Wii documents with the black shoe polish but they didn't do it with these. And so they're asking the media, please don't report these really sensitive details. (laughs) Oops. Get your act together. And I'm saying that very politely because the things I want to say 
will get the license pulled. There's an explosive report that's come out today being reported across uh, multiple media chains now that uh, just weeks after Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor were taken hostage, the true government wanted to push forward with plans to invite the Chinese military here to do cold weather training sessions so that the Chinese military could learn our techniques. And the training was canceled by top Canadian military officials after the United States warned rightly so, that this joint operation would give our enemy valuable insights. And this would all go to the People's Liberation Army. And according to the documents, which if you read through are just kind of confounding, Trudeau was furious about the decision to cancel and told our top military officials not to cancel any more engagements with China's military without his explicit approval. So what happens next? Canada then sends our armed forces to compete at the 2019 Military World Games in Wuhan. And what happens there? Becomes ripe old propaganda for China to use. Christian Luprecht is professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, also a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier uh, Institute. And um, Christian, you know this file well. I mean, you were testifying on China and China security as recent as Monday at a committee hearing. And you say... I mean, I don't think you're that surprised by this, but you say it comes down to the fact that the strategy here is that there's no strategy. I think this is classic Ottawa in full action, this particular story. This is Ottawa silos not talking to each other. Um, And uh, so different departments basically do what they think is in the interest of their department and the mandate they have from their minister. And in this case, clearly the mandates didn't line up. And so why do we get these contradictory approaches? Because there's a complete lack of leadership from the top. It ultimately needs to come from the prime minister's office. And it seems that here we're still trying to figure out, you know, it's 2020, the end of 2020, and we're still trying to figure out what a coherent and a cohesive China policy looks like. And we basically leave it up to each of the departments to try to kind of build the plane while flying it. And so this really calls ultimately for what we also call for in in committee testimony before the government operations committee, that we really need a coherent strategy. And that means that ultimately the senior political elected officials need to talk to one another. And we probably need a cabinet level committee where any time you have any critical decision to be made on China, everybody in the civil service takes a deep breath and then thinks about what is the systematic strategic thing to do that is in Canada's overall best interest rather than the siloed best interest of any one department or minister. Right. Well, they're building that plane and crashing it directly into the ground at this point because it's very clear that Canada and Canadians aren't in their interests. And the United States rightly raised concerns about this because they felt, uh, you know, we inviting an enemy to our soil to trade off military secrets was going to put everyone at risk. And military intelligence, apparently, when you read these documents, warned the Trudeau government about this. So putting the Michaels aside, why on earth would this government ever think to invite the Chinese military to this country for military training? Like, how is this even a rational thought? So, in principle, one of the things that Western countries try to do is have 
relationships with other militaries, in particular the officer levels. So for instance, uh, we might invite some officers from the Chinese military to take part perhaps in our staff officer courses. So the Australians are particularly good at that because then these folks will grow up and then when you, as they rise through the ranks, if you need someone to call, you have a relationship with those, with, with those folks. But of course, China isn't just any one country. China is a country that is systematically trying to mow not just our lawn, but Western democracies' lawn, and therefore our values, our interests, our way of life. Moreover, China has very clear and intent designs on the Arctic and has made that very mm-hmm. well known. So why would we share our own particular expertise, our knowledge and our intelligence by a country that is clearly an adversary when it comes to the Arctic and their intent to exploit resources in the Arctic uh, against the interests ultimately of likely all the other Arctic countries um, there. And it's one of the things where Canada and Russia agree on is that we don't want China in the Arctic. Well, no kidding. Hey, guys, come over and learn how to deal with cold weather. Oh, you want to steal the Arctic? No problem. We'll teach you how to do that. That's how ridiculous and scary this is. But, you know, these documents come out as a result of a freedom of information request that was put in two years ago. And I guess the person who released it forgot to redact sensitive classified information. I mean, maybe they were so busy blacking out all the we documents that they forgot uh, they ran out of markers. I don't know. But, you know, here they are asking the media, oh, please don't release all the sensitive stuff. I mean, who who are we talking about? Are we talking about 22-year-olds or any grown-ups in the room in these conversations? Well, so normally there's a two-step process where the department will black it out and then there's a separate, if there's security-related issues, uh, there's a separate sort of review of what was blacked out, both so that it was done um, properly in light of the Access to Information Act and so that security issues sort of don't inadvertently end up getting disclosed. So uh, this is a pretty serious gaffe. Uh, for basically the, the, the ministry having to call uh, the associated uh, um, a newspaper and basically asking them not to reveal certain items uh, in here. So it seems that they caught wind of it early, probably because uh, that particular newspaper gave them a call and said, um, do you know what we have here? That looks really interesting. So it also points to, I think, some shortcomings within the, uh, within the department overall. But I think the, the broader challenge here is that it, it, it suggests, you know, the, the, the disconnect that we have on the release of the documents is indicative of the broader disconnect when it comes to the China file in uh, in Ottawa. And of course, the people who ultimately suffer from that is the two Michaels, because that's mm-hmm. where we need a coherent strategy. We need to save their lives in this hostage diplomacy effort by China. And I think it is really inexcusable that we drop the ball this poorly on, that, on a file that we have known about for years is a geostrategic country that is not like any other country in the world and that needs the much more attention than it is getting from uh, very senior levels in Ottawa. And and nothing happens by accident in politics. I say that often. And so I'm sure the call was placed for comment. Like, do you want to explain this very explosive report that has somehow gotten into our hands? Uh, And then all of a sudden, wow, Health Canada, we've approved a vaccine. It's hard not to be cynical about the timing of this because, you know, one story will bump the other down the line. But, uh, you know, you, you look at these documents and when Justin Trudeau found out that the Canadian military canceled this operation, uh, you know, with American military intelligence kind of breathing down their throat. Apparently, instead of reacting like a Canadian leader should and saying, "Okay, thank you for protecting us. He was so furious. He said, moving forward, nothing gets 
canceled with anything with China uh, without my approval. And then we send our military off to do these these uh, kind of games in Wuhan in October of 2019. I mean, like. I get that they don't want to piss off China, but that this is ridiculous because China just then turned around and used it as propaganda. So we live in a democracy, of course, and so ultimately what sets us apart from China is that our elected politicians make the decisions and call the shots ultimately on, on government policy and on where and how the Canadian Armed Forces deploys. But I think here's an example of where we didn't, as a result of not enough attention initially, we got decisions that were made uh, that were probably not in China's overall interests. Uh, then we got pressure from the, uh, f- from the Americans with whom we work very closely uh, in particular, the Arctic Domain Awareness Center in, uh, at the University of Anchorage, Alaska, um, that would have exerted considerable pressure that this was not the uh, brightest idea sort of in the, in the political sphere, but that we couldn't put one and one together, that we would be instrumentalized um, mm-hmm. if we cooperate with China in, uh, um, in, in the military games in Wuhan. And of course, it's not just us that got instrumentalized, it's the Americans that got instrumentalized because, of course, one of the narratives that the Chinese put out is the Americans somehow imported the virus at the military games. Yeah. So it shows that China simply cannot be trusted uh, as a collaborator or even like in, in sort of goodwill sort of efforts, uh, benign sort of efforts, uh, and that uh, it's just another lesson of uh, how much attention this file really needs and how, my, how much of a deficit we have. Well, it also shows a complete naivete as to how how blind uh, those in charge are on this file, and they just refuse to realize not just how dangerous this country is, uh, but that you don't reward them when they've kidnapped your own citizens. And and the documents go on to reveal that Catherine McKenna, uh, after the Michaels were were kidnapped, traveled to China to go to a conference. Um, you know, I mean. I don't know what game is being played here, but it is not one that is in the best interests of this country. And the argument is always like, oh, what damage this might do to the Canadian economy. But really, our trade with China from those exports is relatively negligible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about three to four percent, sort of, of our um, of, of our total sort of export trade for a country like Australia, where it's uh, over a third. That of course makes a big difference. But you know, like if the Chinese want to retaliate, uh, retaliate in some fashion, you know, yes, we need to look after our agricultural sector. But it's not like we're as dependent on China somehow for our exports as uh, I think some voices in government would have us believe. And so I still kind of am a little bit puzzled why we continue to put out this narrative that somehow we are so dependent uh, mm-hmm. on China. And that China could sort of have these ruinous repercussions uh, for us if we take a tougher stance on the country. Yeah. And it's not always about economy. Sometimes it's about taking a principled stand, uh, you know, to stand up for democracies that are under attack increasingly by this uh, thuggish regime. Nonetheless, uh, this story is uh, going to continue, I think, to ripple for the next couple of days. I think the prime minister is coming out likely tomorrow for an avail. So it should be an interesting one. Uh, Charles, I appreciate you um, giving a uh, Christian. <laughs> Charles. Christian, I appreciate you giving insight into this for us. It's always a real pleasure. Thank you. Christian Loprecht, uh, able to break this down. And uh, the story's not going away. It is just simply, I mean, you read through the documents and they are online. It is just crazy, the approach this government seems to uh, want to take with China, uh, much to our country's detriment, not to mention the Michaels. All right. Welcome back on this busy, busy Wednesday. And he may not be the architect, but he certainly was a key member of the Toronto 18 and played a key role in the plans to bomb parts of downtown Toronto, as well as the beheading of a prime minister, Stephen Harper. And now Sharif Abdullah Halim has been given day parole. 
even though his corrections official said that was premature. And I covered the Toronto 18 cases many, many years ago. And so my ears always perk up whenever I hear of new developments. But we are actually at the point now where one, only one of the 11 convicted have uh, remains behind bars. And the one who does remain behind bars is the actual architect, a fellow named Zachariah Amara. And on the decision... Uh, Mr. Sharif Abdelhalim told the parole board how thankful he is and that he won't make them sorry. And then he said, quote, I know that you're taking a risk and this is going to be highly mediatized. But in front of all these people and in front of God, I know I said I was not a religious man, but I do believe in God and I will not disappoint you. You'll never hear from me again. Well, we do hope. But uh, here we go. Taking a chance again, releasing someone that despite some red flags could end up. Uh, I guess, making a regret. Mubin Sheikh is a professor of public safety over at Seneca College, also went undercover for CSIS and the RCMP in the Toronto 18, and he joins us now. Good to have you. Hello, thanks for having me. All right, so Sharif Abdelhalim is uh, now kind of a free man. Are you surprised? Uh, I'm not surprised. I mean, only because of the way our legal system is set up. Uh, You know, individuals who are sentenced to, you know, X amount of years, they look, they're legally eligible for parole, um, and at some point they're going to get it, and this is the point that we're at now. So, Yeah, I mean, I should have I benched that because life in Canada means basically five days and you're out. So, yes, I, I should couch it like that. But, you know, what can you tell us about, I mean, he was a, a key player, not the main player, but what can you tell about him as, as far as his role in the plot? Yeah, I um, when I was uh, when I was with the group, uh, Fahim Ahmed, who was one of the other ringleaders uh, and who got out of prison actually last year, uh, told me that they had recruited the son of a prominent Toronto imam uh, in their group. And uh, I remember asking him, is, "Is his name Sharif?" And he confirmed that it was. And I understood that he was being recruited to basically be the financier of the plot. All right. And so, you know, he's got conditions on release. And so he can't associate with anyone involved in crime or or radicalized activity. Can't go to Toronto without permission not to have a position of responsibility in any spiritual or religious activity, um, which would include a mosque. He has to attend de-radicalization treatment programs and can only own one cell phone. Um, so there are conditions in in these things, but uh, he promised he's a changed man. And then, you know, I, I'm reading through some of your Twitter. I mean, his father is a, a, a known member of Al-Qaeda, which would make it hard for him unless he has absolutely no touch with his father. Yeah, this is a, a quite the aggravating factor, if I can put it <laughs> politely. Um, his, his father is a known Al-Qaeda ideologue. Uh, interestingly, he was actually put on an ISIS death list because ISIS, you know, uh, ran, you know, ran uh, afoul of Al Qaeda, and Al Qaeda ideologues who were writing against ISIS uh, were, you know, were designated this way. So, you know, it's just it's weird that yes, he's an Al Qaeda ideologue, but ISIS wants him dead too. Uh, but but definitely, it's a problem. I think. Well, yeah, a little problem. And it's, it's, yeah, that is a bit of an oxymoron. But I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if he has shunned his father. Uh, but I would have to think that if he is speaking to his father, that would be a direct violation of his parole conditions. I'm curious to, I don't know what the parole board, you know, was told, what information they may have at their disposal. Um, so I, I it's, it's weird that, 
this is the case, and yet uh, they didn't flag it. So I don't know what to make of that. It's also curious that in 2019, he wasn't up for release because he wasn't, uh, I guess, uh, you know, considered uh, ready at that time. And yet in 2020, he is. And I don't know if COVID is an aggravating factor where they're just pushing people out faster than they can. Uh, in your mind and from your perspective, uh, how serious of a player? I mean, people kind of always laughed off the Toronto 18 as if it wasn't a serious thing. It was a serious thing. And if it had been carried out, a lot of people would have died. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it would have been a catastrophic attack uh, that would have happened. And my God, you know, I, I just I couldn't imagine the headlines that, that would have followed. Um, what's interesting is with with Abdul Halim, they, they you know, he has been undergoing, I guess, some kind of because both of us are following the same threads. And, you know, he's been uh, being counseled, apparently, by actually a very reputable, well-known service agency in Quebec based out of Montreal called the Center for the Prevention of Radicalization Leading to Violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's actually uh, a good sign, I think, because I, I know those people and they're very good. Um, but uh, even knowing uh, Sharif, like he wasn't really a religious guy. Uh, he, he really wasn't a religious guy. He wasn't ideologically committed. Uh, I We believe that he had financial interests. So the Toronto Stock Exchange was one of the targets. And one of the reasons it was one of the targets is because Sharif wanted to make money off of fraudulent investments uh, on the stock exchange and then, you know, hit the stock exchange and then make money off of that. So that's the that that was his involvement angle here. That's fascinating. I, I hadn't heard that. And that is uh, that or I don't remember it because. Um, it's been so many years, but it is fascinating. And so, and so, there is now one man behind bars, and and that is the actual architect, Zachariah Amara. And uh, I assume that he's also going to be trying to get parole, and I assume that he'll get it in in probably not too short of a time. And, and so, um, he is the the king player. But it's hard to believe, out of all of the people convicted, uh, we really only have one person behind bars. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's uh, it's been, what, 14 years since the arrest. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, the way the legal system works, uh, some of these guys, when they, you get double time, right, while you're waiting yep. in custody for trial. So you can imagine a, a guy who was waiting for trial for two years, you know, he gets four years of custody already credited. So that that's yeah. another yeah. angle. Um, but yeah, he will be out soon, I have no doubt. Yeah, and, and those rules uh, thankfully have changed since that time. But he came in before the the rules were changed. And and you know, in your in your view, I mean, we talk about COVID now, and it has overshadowed everything. But there there is still there is still a threat, even though terror is not seen in the headlines every day. But it just doesn't seem like this country either takes it seriously or knows how to take it seriously, because of course they can't even figure out what to do with returning ISIS fighters. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, this is something that I, I you know, very much uh, care about because obviously it's the safety of Canadians and, you know, it's, uh, we, we, we don't really take it seriously, uh, truly, as we should. You know, this, this, you know, including like sentencing, so like what kind of, you know, punishments are given, how early people get, you know, parole or bail, uh, parole. You know, not too long ago, actually, um, another, uh, two twin brothers were arrested some years ago. One of them was recently released as well, right? He wanted to go skiing, for example. So, 
yes. it is, it's hard for us in this COVID environment where everything is locked up, we're not able to whatever, and then we're seeing things like this, you know, it just, it, it creates problems for us, right? That would be the perfect time to strike a terror attack as well. Everybody is looking away. Well, I I so appreciate your uh, insight into this particular issue because I know that you are one of very few who actually have it. Mubin, thank you for your time. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. That is Mubin Sheikh joining us here. So we will watch for that one who still remains behind bars. The last time I spoke with my guest, uh, it was in the height, really, of the first wave of the pandemic, and he was facing a pretty grim situation because his his body was quickly failing him after waiting four years for a liver that needed to match his very particular blood type. And the list was so long for him to wait that doctors finally said, you know what, you've got a better chance of finding one on your own because not enough people have signed up to register. And so at that point, he and his family really campaigned to find a donor and did so at a time when no one was paying attention to anything but COVID. And so not many people were listening. But, you know, in these things, it only takes one person to hear the plea. And that one person was a woman who quietly came forward and offered up a miracle. And today we can tell you that John Size now has a second lease on life thanks to a total stranger, a donor named Michelle Kelly, a registered nurse and a mom to two. And they only met after she gave John 70% of her liver. John Size and Michelle Kelly join me now. Thank you both for you joining me. Thank you for having us, Alex. Yes, thank you. You guys are two total strangers who must have just an incredibly special bond for life, even though you really only met um, after the September 14th surgery in the recovering. So thanks. You know, John, let me start with you, because last we spoke, you were on borrowed time in this pandemic and Michelle answers your prayer. Um, So that would have been a, a few months ago. What was it like to find out you got a match? Well, I have to tell you about the day. It was a fantastic uh, day, and it was it, it started off in sort of shock. Um, uh, my wife Wendy was on a, on a business meeting call at the time, and uh, all of a sudden, something flashed across the computer screen. It said, "Hi, I'm your donor, Michelle." And uh, you know, she had to finish her business meeting, and then she she uh, went frantically looking for the message because she didn't know where it came in from. Finally, she realized it came in on Facebook. And then she called me into the house. Uh, I was in the in sort of the backyard area, and I came in. She said, "We have a donor," and I, I stood there in disbelief. And then we both looked at each other, and tears started running down our faces. We were so emotional about it, you know. It was just, it was disbelief but joy at the same time, all mixed together, mixed emotions and tears and hugs. It was just a a wonderful moment for us. And Michelle, you know, you're a mom of two, but you are a registered nurse, so you understand the need for organ donation and how important it is. But there are risks. I mean, what made you step up at a really tough time when you were probably under a lot of stress with COVID? You can say that again. Um, I just, it's just been something that I've always wanted to do. Uh, The technology and the ability to have live donors for livers and kidneys were starting to become popular and more noted in science when I was a teenager. So I was really fascinated with that. And I always thought that would be so amazing to do. And it didn't have to be somebody in my family. It didn't even have to be somebody that I actually knew. Um, It was just something that I thought would be really amazing to do. So um, it's always been something that's been like a goal of mine, I guess, but Mm. more so just, if someone's out there needing 
a piece of me and I can give it and I'm healthy enough to do it, why not? Yeah, the sad reality is organ donation um, sounds good to a lot of people, but they don't get around to signing their donor card. I have one in my wallet, which is, um, you know, probably way too old, but I, I am a willing organ donor. Um, but you gave 70%. I mean, that's not a small piece of liver. I mean, you gave 70% of your liver. Yes, yes. What's that like? Uh, it was interesting. Uh, <laughs> definitely <laughs> one of my more major surgeries that I've ever had in my life. Um but I remember waking up in recovery and right away asking, um, how did the surgery go? Is everything okay? How's John doing? Um, did, did it work? Did it take? Um, and all the nurses and the staff reassuring me that both of our surgeries went amazingly well. Um, John was a little bit um, further ahead kind of in his surgery than I was. So he was out of recovery after me. Um, but I remember the first time that I actually laid eyes on him, they were wheeling him past my door so he could go have an ultrasound to double check everything was well. And, uh, he just shouted at me from the hallway. I love you, Michelle. And it was <laughs> an amazing moment. Um, and uh, I mean, the team had warned me that, you know, this is not a kind of surgery that necessarily has a beneficial outcome for me but it's more so for him so some of the ethics are a little bit more different with this type of surgery but honestly just seeing him so happy and I mean even just now in these first couple of months seeing the changes in him physically and um, emotionally too like he's just so much more happy and healthy I mean that's that's all that I wanted, really, ultimately. So, I mean, I did get something out of this surgery other than being able to donate. Yeah, I mean, not only do you have your own uh, personal nurse, uh, John, to reach out to for, for help, but I mean, <laughs> the good news about livers is that uh, they grow back quickly. Um, but, John, for you, uh, the moment they put a, 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 a healthy liver in your body was really the moment you started coming back to life. It was almost instant. It was it was almost instant. In fact, I, I remember waking up in in the recovery and and looking around, and, and my my mind was clear. Uh, with liver disease, you know, you get toxins that build up in your blood and into your brain, and you be, it's like a fog that hangs over you. It's like yeah. uh, it's like you're looking through a haze, and you don't think clearly. And uh, I remember waking up and looking around the room, and my my uh, thinking was was you know almost clear despite all the medications I was on. But I was thinking clearly again, and I said, "This is who I am. This is me. I found my person again." And it was a, it was an amazing moment. And all I could think about was the gift that Michelle gave me. She gave me a life back. And uh, that's an amazing thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, you, you might have yelled, I love you, Michelle. I mean, in jest to some degree, but there has to be a very special bond knowing that that she gave you. I mean, when I talked to you last, I mean, it was really touch and go. It, not, not even at, at the best of times, it was touch and go. We were talking in a in a pandemic. And I remember when I set up yeah. the initial interview with, with Wendy, you know, to talk about it, the situation was so serious and so grave. It was such a shot in the dark of trying to find your own match. And and I really was like, I don't know what's going to happen, but you're dealing with this in, in the worst pandemic of our existence. Well, it, that's true. Uh, the fact was that they had stopped doing a lot of transplants at uh, UHN. Uh, there just simply uh, wasn't uh, the medical facilities available to, to uh, continue on with transplants, particularly kidney transplants and for liver patients. Yeah. 
Uh, they were, unfortunately, some of them were dying on the waiting list because they just couldn't get livers to them because the teams that uh, at one time would go out and procure a, a deceased donor, they, they weren't doing that in the pandemic. Uh, it wasn't safe. So unfortunately, there, there was, you know, some COVID-related deaths there that aren't specific, directly linked to the virus itself. And that, that was on the uh, organ transplant list, as well as uh, many other patients, such as cancer as well. Yeah, I have to think, uh, I mean, you've beaten so many odds, you might want to go out and buy a lottery ticket, but how's the recovery been? And I'll start with you, Michelle, because you went into this healthy. How's your recovery been? It's been really good. Um, There's been a couple of lows uh, in terms of pain management. But other than that, um, I have an incredibly supportive partner. My kids have been fantastic through this whole process. My family has been really supportive. Uh, my employer as well, uh, allowing me to have this time off to recover. So it's just been slow but steady, and I'm just being patient and listening to my body. And I remind myself that I listened to my body before the surgery, and it grew me a really nice liver, so nice that I was able to give a piece away to it. So clearly I'm doing something right with taking care of myself. So, <laughs> Well, as if frontline workers... Aren't, aren't giving enough in these times. Uh, it's now you're giving away body parts. So, I, But on a spiritual level, I have to think, even though you're a healthcare worker and understand the challenges of organ donation, has it changed you? Um, I, I'm not, you know what, to be honest, I don't know because I haven't been back to work since my surgery. But um, when I first began my nursing career in medicine, we I did have uh, quite a few patients who had end-stage liver disease. So when I heard about John's story and I heard about his condition, I knew exactly what he was going through because I've had patients like mm-hmm. him before. So I just, my heart just went out to him and I just knew exactly um, what needed to happen for him to have a healthy life again. And well, it wasn't your heart. It was your liver, which is even better. Yeah. Uh, and, and John, um, I take it this is a bond for life. I mean, this is not just life changing, but um, really, you guys have a, a very, very special bond. It is. And I, I can't uh, I usually every day we text each other, at least at the very minimum. We just, I just love talking to Michelle and I like hearing her stories. I watch her TikToks, which are hilarious. And uh, there's, a, there's a bond between us now that yeah. will always exist. And when I told her I loved her, I meant it. I was sincere and I, and I do. She yeah. saved uh, my life and brought my family happiness. And uh, I, I owe her all that for her generosity well, and, and her humanity. Yeah, I I, um, I love stories like this. I, I you know often they're they're a bad ending, but I was so thrilled when I heard the news, uh, you know, about the surgery that had happened that you were on the mend, and and I'm even now more happy that I get to meet the the woman behind um, this miracle. So I thank you both for sharing your journey. We'll continue uh, following it, but um, you know I really do appreciate you bringing some light into a very dark time, both of you. Well, thank you, thank you again, Alex. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Michelle. That is John Size, who got the liver, and Michelle Kelly, who gave the liver. Um, and organ donation is is a kind of something that becomes an afterthought, but it is so, so, so crucial, especially in these times. But uh, if you can register, do it, because the list is long. And um, for a guy like John, whose family had to go out and find it, it's just an extra stress people don't need. We've got them. If we can give them. Hopefully we can do so while alive and create a miracle. But I'm so, so pleased with that headline to see a happy ending in the end. 
You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.